Hello and welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Blackwells Presents. Blackwells was established in Oxford at 4851 Broad Street in 1879 by Benjamin Henry Blackwell and has been selling books to the world since then. We have been lucky enough to host a wide range of fascinating authors, entertain presidents and prime ministers, employ booksellers that have gone on to be nominated for the Man Booker shortlist, and we have been lucky enough to share a love of books with people from all walks of life. Blackwells are honoured to be the official bookseller for the Oxford Literary Festival. We are the primary bookseller to one of the oldest universities in the world, and in a few months' time, we're pleased to be holding our first ever mental health gala. Blackwells has been at the forefront of bookselling and culture for 140 years, and it is our dream to share a love of literature and knowledge. So it's a great pleasure to launch Blackwells' new podcast. We're excited to share with you author interviews, recordings of our events held in the bookshop, and plenty of bookseller recommends. We kick off the first episode of this podcast with a recording of Paul Luna's talk on his book, Typography, A Very Short Introduction, which took place on the 16th of January in the Norrington Room. This was part of our For Learning, For Life series, which featured Paul Luna, Laura Marcus, and Mark Dodgson, all discussing their very short introductions. Paul Luna both researches and designs complex texts. He designed the last two editions of the shorter Oxford English Dictionary, and has written on the relationship between typography and lexicography, including a study of the typography of Samuel Johnson's dictionary. Paul is a professor at the University of Reading and co-editor of the Department of Typography and Graphic Communications publication, Typography Papers. Hello, thank you for coming out, uh, giving up your lunch hour and uh, coming to learn about typography. Great series from Blackwells and, and lovely, lovely to be here. So, why should you read a very short introduction to typography? That's just fonts, isn't it? What's so interesting about the subject? Let me start by suggesting you already know quite a lot about typography. Two things you already know about typography. The first is that you're an expert reader and you can read almost anything. If I present you with only half a line of letters, you might be surprised at how easy it is for you to read it. Of course, it matters which half of the line I show you. That's because in English, there are more letters with unique distinguishable shapes above the midline than there are below. So if I show you the bottom half of a similar line of type, you may not find this quite so easy. You're attuned to the meaning of typography you can accurately read the intentions of a designer just by looking, even before you start reading. In a visual world, we only have the immediate impact of a document on our eyes from which to form a judgment. And as I said, we're experts in doing this. We infer meaning even when none exists. Recent research into readers' responses 
to different typographic and layout conventions has drawn out some of the rhetorical associations which readers make when they're confronted with unfamiliar documents. When subjects were presented with linguistically meaningless text, such as this, in carefully designed alternative layouts, they quickly made quite specific assumptions about the likely ease of reading, the degree of factual content in, and the potential usefulness of these documents, even when they couldn't actually read the text. What did they respond to? They responded to the presence of light rules and boxed elements in a layout as representing seriousness. But when the rules and boxes were made heavy or angled or colored or there were irregularly shaped items on a page, these were associated with sensationalism and other less or more negative traits. These results confirm that readers respond to the rhetorical functions of design as soon as they set eyes on a document. So what are the mechanisms by which designers evoke reader responses? Again, it's not all about fonts. If typography were just about choosing typefaces, well, a designer's life would be easy. We would simply decide each day day-to-day -day, which particular alphabet appealed to us and use it. But as I say, typography is more than fonts. It's really about the totality of design for reading. So to attempt some definitions, it's perhaps a set of visual choices designed to make a written message more accessible, more easily transmitted, more significant or more attractive. Selecting the kinds of letters to use for any piece of typography is a fundamental design choice because it can have an impact on all of these aims. Some typefaces are more legible, some are designed for particular technologies, and some strike us as having intrinsic emotional associations. Let's now turn to the difference between spoken and written or printed language. Spoken language is resolutely linear. When we speak, we generate a continuous stream of sounds, which as listeners, we decode into words. This linearity is why the order of words in most languages is critical to meaning. We therefore recognize the significance of linear order when we listen, and when we come to write, we try to craft complete sentences whose meaning is clear from the order of their elements. To demonstrate this linearity, here's part of the BBC shipping forecast for inshore waters as we listen to it on the radio. Viking, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, five or six, occasionally seven later, slight or moderate, occasionally rough later, rain then showers, moderate or good, northern Sierra, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, four or five, increasing six at times, slight or moderate, rain then showers. Good, occasionally poor at first. South Utsira, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly four or five, increasing six at times, slight or moderate, rain then showers. Good, occasionally poor at first. The words of the shipping forecast, they're not always sentences, 
fall into a regular repeating sequence. Otherwise, ordinary words, good, fair, slight, are imbued with specific calibrated meanings far more precise than when they're used in ordinary speech. Is it perhaps this oddly patterned use of ordinary words, mostly adverbs and adjectives, read in a deliberately neutral voice with slight pauses that makes listening to the shipping forecast so mesmerising and even calming for us landlubbers? The inshore mariner isn't listening to be mesmerised, but to catch the name of the sea areas that they're sailing in and then to extract the weather data that follows. The mariner mentally inserts the missing labels for the data that they're hearing, knowing that the order is wind, direction, speed, sea state, weather, visibility. Now, those of us who are not in peril on the sea need to gra graphically transform this linear verbal sequence in order to extract the data. First, let's try setting it out line for line in a list. Viking, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, five or six, occasionally seven later, slight or moderate, occasionally enough later, rain then showers, moderate or good, northern Sierra, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, four or five, increasing six at times, slight or moderate, rain then showers, good, occasionally pour out first. South Utsira, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, four or five, increasing six at times, slight or moderate, rain then showers, good, occasionally pour out first. As we can see, this list, as I've presented it here, doesn't really give us enough salience to the all-important sea areas, and we're still relying on the sequence of information to decode each piece of data. And you can see that the common alignment of lines at the left also causes some ambiguity as to when an item begins or when it continues. Now, we could improve this perhaps by formatting the list more heavily. Now, that's better. But what we need is a presentation that will give us access to the sea area that we're interested in and that puts back in all those unheard data labels. Here's the same forecast, this time presented as a table. Viking, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, five or six, occasionally seven later, slight or moderate, occasionally enough later, rain then showers, moderate or good, north at zero, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, four or five, increasing six at times, slight or moderate, rain then showers, good, occasionally poor at first. South at zero, southerly, veering westerly or southwesterly, four or five, increasing six at times, slight or moderate, rain then showers, good, occasionally poor at first. Now, a table demonstrates two of the advantages of visual language over spoken language. Simultaneity and accessibility of information. At one glance, we can see the overall structure of the forecast. We can focus on the data that is specific to a single sea area by reading across a row. But unlike the list, we can also compare 
specific conditions in different areas by reading down a column. And if we were at sea, the table would enable us to decide which sea area we should sail towards to find better weather. We can think of these three presentations of the shipping forecast as three different typographic configurations of prose, which typographers call linear interrupted, a list, more or less heavily formatted, and finally a table, which typographers call a matrix. Now to explain these terms, that term linear interrupted, a prose paragraph is linear, but it's interrupted by line breaks, and these line breaks are arbitrary. They're not semantically significant. Line breaks, page breaks, are a function of this Procrustean bed of the page, whether in print or on screen, and they're determined by the maximum length of line that we can comfortably read, and that's about 70 characters, and by the maximum size of the page that we can comfortably display or hold on a screen or on a printed page. Now, not all of our spoken utterances are of equal value. Similarly, the flow of text in a document will very rarely consist of elements of exactly equal value. In speech, we use additional statements to cue our listeners to the status of what we're about to say. In written language, statements such as the spoken, I'll now turn to the weather, can be translated into a heading. The words following, I'll give you three examples, we could turn into an ordered list. And the words following, I heard Jane say, into a quotation. The particular sequence and combination of these elements defines the structure of a text. In visualising these structures, typographers typically use salience, that is, visual prominence achieved by spatial or contrast differences or a combination of both in some graded way to identify the various elements in a text flow. So here we just are going to move with four examples of how an element gets slowly more salient and you can see it better. The salience value that we give to any element may be determined by two standpoints though these standpoints will often overlap. One is understanding the writer's intention. The other is trying to figure out what the reader's requirements are. The typographer's role is to mediate between these poles. Now, there may also be external determinants of how salience is implemented, such as technical limitations. For example, here I've got colour. On a black and white Xerox page, I might not. And there might be other conventions to do with genre and house style, what a publisher expects a publication to look like. In the 1920s, the Gestalt psychologists set out principles of perception that helped explain why many conventional typographic presentations of hierarchy work. And doing so, they validated much tacit craft knowledge in design. Put simply, their essential thesis was that we perceive the whole 
as rather more than as different from the sum of its parts. We perceive relationships between elements as well as the features of individual elements. In thinking about hierarchy, the most relevant Gestalt principles are the similarity principle and the proximity principle. The first tells us simply that we group things that resemble each other. You first of all saw an array of blue dots. Now you can see a rectangle of yellow dots as well. Items that share similar characteristics and properties we tend to perceive as a group. The proximity principle tells us that while we see individual elements, we perceptually group elements on the basis of their nearness to one another. Elements that are close together are perceptually grouped together, all other things being equal. And these two principles can be used separately or more powerfully together. Spatial proximity is one of the most powerful organising tools and organising principles that a designer has available to them. If headings, for example, are closer to the text that follows than they are to the text above, then that will reinforce their connection to the following text. I said earlier that readers infer meaning and intention from layout features. So how do typographers think about layout? Layout is the arrangement of material on a page or a screen that articulates the text that we're reading. Layout is a recognition that we read different parts of a document differently. The earliest forms of books supported a particular kind of reading, where memorising the text in order to recall it verbatim was paramount. This allows for a straightforward linear visual presentation with very little, if any, spacing between words and paragraphs. In a way, it's as close to the continuous linear quality of speech as you can get. And this manuscript example shows that it was appropriate in the period when the clergy, the main producers and users of books, read a small number of books at a slow pace. I should add that the annotation down the left-hand margin wasn't part of the original manuscript, it was added later. So block that out from your sense of what was going on on the page originally. Major changes in the design of manuscripts occurred in the 12th century because of an increase in the lay readership of books. This is a manuscript from the 13th century and it's very different in appearance from a typical book of the 9th century. The later medieval manuscript is no longer just a single original work, but actually it's a set of parallel translations, and it includes paratextual features such as interlinear or marginal glosses. These were important for monks, for whom Latin, which was the language of religious texts, was not their first language. With the development of new kinds of books, encyclopedias, anthologies, concordances, comparisons and references between texts became increasingly important and required solutions to help the reader navigate their pages. So we can see different sizes of different scripts, different coloured initials and different columnar arrangements. These are not simply a matter of decoration, but 
essential to the articulation of what were becoming increasingly complex documents. And I think we can see a typographic sensibility in these arrangements of text on a page, despite their hand production method. Glosses are often written smaller so that two lines exactly match up with a single line of the main text, establishing a modular relationship that enables pages to be planned exactly into rectangular units. Designers respond to the challenge of complex combination of text and images by using a number of strategies, and one of them is the grid. This controls the elements on a page or on a screen so that Gestalt principles will link or separate them. Grids offer a way of introducing modularity and allow a page to use size, for example, both as a schematic indicator of hierarchy, but also as a naturalistic indicator of scale. Now, imagine you're designing a catalogue of paintings. When it comes to the images, a decision has to be made about the scale of reproduction. Should the paintings be sized by importance? That may mean that a picture's size is not related to the amount of detail in it. Here we've got one hero image and then three other images which have just been made a lot smaller. Should the pictures fit to common widths or heights so that they align with the horizontal or vertical intervals of the grid? That's the solution adopted when a page is layout, laid out by typesetters without specific instructions from a designer, for example, in a journal. Or should they be sized in proportion to their actual dimensions so that large and small canvases are reproduced in proportion? We have to ask ourselves which solution best matches the needs of the reader of that particular book. Another decision to be taken by the designer, and this is one that can only be taken in collaboration with a writer or editor, is whether to treat pages simply as arbitrary divisions, much as line breaks are arbitrary in continuous prose, or as semantic units, so that the boundary of a page is a sense unit in the text. Most prose books, the pagination is arbitrary. The text just runs on from page to page. The direct visual reflection of contents was rare in printed books until the mid-20th century, when layout ideas from magazines began to be adopted in informational and instructional books. Pre-existing texts are very difficult to arrange so that page breaks match sense units. Books which are commissioned, and which are commissioned to be read in a particular way, such as school and college textbooks, can be planned page by page into semantically significant units. The combination of page by page layout and a flexible grid system underlies much contemporary non-fiction illustrated publishing, Dorling Kindersley being the classic example. Together, these concepts of how the organization of thought in language can be represented by configuration, whether we use prose, tables, or lists, 
how hierarchical relationships within a text can be visually represented, and the organisation of page layout. These things are at the heart of typographic design. The common feature of all these is that they assist us in planning design solutions that are rational responses to the text because they actually invoke the immediate unambiguous understanding of the reader. Indeed, such choices are often initially made by writers and editors who might not consider themselves visual designers. In fact, all parties in the chain of a publication have a stake in the clarity of the visual language that they produce for the reader. This emphasis, this emphasizes the need for a collaborative workflow that integrates such decisions when, with those that are more often seen as being purely in the typographic designer's domain, such as designing, deciding on margins, line spacing, heading, and so on, or, or indeed choosing the font. One of the advantages that print still has over digital media is it can communicate an imme immediately aspects of visual organisation. We can see this by comparing a printed newspaper page with the equivalent story on the newspaper's website. Websites, web pages can offer rich media content. They're less good at visually relating material for the reader. This spread of printed pages organises the topic. There's a tint panel running across the top, and that groups the stories underneath this and identifies the area that they're in. There's a large central image which visualizes the freeze metaphor of the main headline. Data is presented in statistical charts. A tint panel at the foot links a set of case studies, while a smaller story on the right is a political analysis. And there's even a glossary of terms on a tint panel in column two. On the web, there isn't a spread of pages. The stories are chopped up, and as a result, an individual web page, by comparison, is a poor affair. Only one story is presented, stripped to the statistical charts. Only the glossary remains right at the end. The connected stories have disappeared. While they're elsewhere on the website, there actually aren't on this page any direct links to them. There is no image to give immediacy and appeal to the article. The items in the two right-hand columns, which you might think are related, actually are mostly generic links to other economics or politics stories or advertisements. And these are likely to have been created dynamically at the point of access, so they have no no contextual relevance to the, to, to the article itself at all. There are many more distractions and diversions for the reader on the web page than the single advertisement on the printed spread. In terms of multimodality, options for readers and the ability to signal the importance of the topic and the newspaper's editorial stance, I would argue that the printed page in this case is much richer. Typography's function of organising our world of incessant information through visual form is obviously as important as it ever was. 
unfortunately, it's much more widely taught, understood, and appreciated. Now that the tools of typographic production and reproduction are in so many hands. The challenge really, as I think this shows you, is for the techniques of screen-based typography to advance in areas where print is still fully functional. The challenge for print is to retain its functionality and appeal. Now, print isn't dead as a way of supporting focused, considered reading, but it is dying as a means of distributing information that needs to be consumed rapidly. So instead of a single print version, the Washington Post now has many variants for computers with different screen sizes, for tablets, for phones, and all of these are available globally, instantly. Each manifestation requires a modulated typographic approach that suits the publication's content to the reader's particular situation, maximizing the efficiency of the device that they're reading it on. And yet, all of these versions have to be bound together by typographic branding and house style in order to confirm to readers that they are indeed holding the Washington Post in their hands. Printing has moved on from initially reproducing the look of manuscripts to embrace new forms. It's the part of the ongoing challenge for typography as the century develops to create digital publications that rise above the generic or technologically determined to be genuinely at the service of the reader. Thank you very much. Thank you to Paul Luna for joining us, and thank you for listening to the first ever episode of Blackwell's Presents. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Blackwell Oxford. Visit our website www.blackwells.co.uk or come and visit us at one of our incredible shops. Join us in two weeks' time to hear Johan Hari's conversation with Nigel Warburton about Johan's latest book, Lost Connections. Thank you. <laughs>